You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode down at the Oklahoma Hall of Fame today. Just wanted to jump in here real quick and tell you that today's podcast is part one of a, of a two-part series. We sat with former Governor George Nye to tell some stories about his history, how he got into politics, and then just some hilarious stories about you know his time in government as Lieutenant Governor, as Governor um him and his wife both inducted to the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Enjoy this episode. We had a blast doing it. Part one and part two will be coming soon. And did you notice in today's paper that the U.S. Senate has made uh, passed a bill unanimously making daylight saving time permanent? I didn't so see that. So they will have more sunlight in most people's day yeah. time when they're up. It goes to the House and President Biden to become law, but yeah. unanimous. Okay. Republicans, Democrats, unanimously may pass a Senate bill making yeah. daylight saving time permanent. I there, love it. There's uh, a big debate about that stuff, right? Because there's people that are like, why do we have this? Why do we not have this? Yeah, I, mean, we I, I hate have it, it when I look out on the patio at 5.30 and it's dark. Yeah, I hate that too. I want, I want to sit out in the sun. I want to... I want to see the birds come in. I want to see the squirrels running down the wall, you know. Yeah. Uh, to me, that I'm glad they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and, and what I'm glad about is that Republicans and Democrats voted unanimously. <laughs> Isn't that nice? That is very nice. I'm sorry to get a rare occasion. You see how I get wound up. So during this interview, just interrupt me anytime. That's okay. Uh, For people listening, the voice that you can hear is former Governor George Nye. And it's a pleasure to have you here to tell some stories. I'm excited. We've got a lot of time to tell stories. I really appreciate you coming down here. Thank you. I appreciate being here, Mike. I'm honored. I am honored. Mm-hmm. I've been out of office since January of 87, so I'm honored that here in 2022, you want to talk to me about... Oh, yeah. I talked <laughs> when about I served as governor. Yeah, and the, all, the, all the other amazing else, things yeah. that you've done before that and after. Um, also yeah. with us today, I've got Jenny Campbell-Moore, who is, um, I mean, you've been at the Hall of Fame for a while. You're killing it here. Um, you know a lot of people, and obviously you've got a great friendship. So have you here, uh, if, if, you, if anybody here has a, here's another voice that's not a male voice, Jenny's here to, to add some context and, and help us, I guess, keep on track, I think is what she's probably here for, right? <laughs> Just to keep us in the right direction. Um, but I guess starting out, I mean, you were inducted into Oklahoma Hall of Fame in 1989. Let's start there. What do you remember about that time when you got inducted? Into the Hall of Fame? Yes, sir. Well, I just would say that I've been to Hall of Fame banquets for years and years and years. I'll just keep in mind, you know, how long I was lieutenant governor, how long I was governor, and the Hall of Fame people always invited me. And uh, my political history, forget quote-unquote party politics, but a lot of my political history has been trying to promote Oklahoma worldwide to help the image of this state, help us to get business here, Mm -hmm. help us to sell our products, et cetera. 
So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame was a fantastic place for me to go to see inducted uh, men and women from every area of the state who have committed their lives to making Oklahoma a better place to live. So all those years, I never dreamed, frankly, Jenny Campbell, I would tell her this because she's been my friend for many years. I never really dreamed in those days that one day I'd be up on the stage and honored. So I truly am honored. So in 89, gosh, this is, I'm up on the stage with all these fantastic people who have made Oklahoma since 1907. I don't know if we have any in some territorial days, but just keep in mind that their job is to honor people who have helped mm-hmm. Oklahoma have a positive international image. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starting locally, and then you work to the state, then you work to the nation, then you work. Uh, see, as lieutenant governor, I traveled all over the world. And they say, well, yeah, he used taxpayers' money, and he got to go to Japan and China and Germany. But almost every place that I went, maybe once, maybe twice, I'm very proud to say I came back mm-hmm. with an, uh, an office being established in Oklahoma by somebody from... Europe, or a company moved from, uh, I mean, from Hong Kong, moved to Norman and bought a place on Highway 9 because they wanted to be close to a university and they loved OU. When they came in and looked, they, where I had picked for them, they looked down the road. (laughs) These people from Hong Kong came in and we were on that road and they, I said, now, I want you to look at this, I want you to look at this, and they kept leaning over my shoulder and they said, What's that down there? And that's down there where they bought the property and moved the company to Oklahoma. So just think that here I was at the Hall of Fame for years, just in the crowd, seeing the people who had made Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... That, that, that's one thing I think that people don't realize is, is the job that you had as lieutenant governor is to travel and bring people here and shout out about Oklahoma and tell people about what, you know, around the world what Oklahoma is. Well, I just, yeah, let me just go back and do a little politicking right now. Yeah. Uh, Oklahoma is one of the states that does not require the governor and the lieutenant governor to be of the same party. Personally, I think we ought to change the Constitution. The lieutenant governor and the governor ought to be working together. But we had many, several, many governors and lieutenant governors that were opposite parties. And when I got first elected lieutenant governor in 1958, I was the youngest lieutenant governor in the nation. I was a Democrat. And the governor, you know, Howard Edmondson was a Democrat, and I got along real well. But when I came to the Capitol, the lieutenant governor in the Constitution is the second person of authority mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. I came to the Capitol. He's president of the state Senate. I came to the Capitol. And I had an office in the Senate chamber, Senate area. Three senators shared my office with me, and I had a half-time secretary. Mm-hmm. No driver, no security, no press secretary. I just a lieutenant governor with a halftime secretary. And I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? 
And so I started trying to do something, and the governor, later on in another term, when I was trying to do something, the governor was a Republican, Dewey Bartlett. And he said, now, and he got, up, he got upset with me because I was trying to do stuff and that he didn't want me to do. And I got upset with him because he wouldn't let me do anything. And one day in the mansion, he'd invited me to a reception and we were standing in line, shaking hands with the crowd that came through. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, we ought to figure out what you, what you can do that won't make me mad. And I said, Governor, that's the best thing I've ever heard of. And so, lo and behold, just a few days later, he called me and asked me would I chair a committee to go to North and South Carolina to look at the Votech system mm -hmm. that he thought we might need a Votech system in Oklahoma as lieutenant governor, would I fly on the state airplane with his administration, people, chamber, commerce people, that sort of stuff. And I was chairman as a Democratic lieutenant governor, and I came back, I suggested to him that yes, we need a Votech system in Oklahoma. I suggested to him that we hire the guy that was ahead of the South Carolina. He did that. We brought him in, and can you believe that within three years and four years, Oklahoma was recognized as the most professional Votech system in America. Yeah. In America. And that was me and Dewey. And so I, then I was one day in my office. I read, excuse me, I read the newspaper today, just before we did this interview, about filming, movies being filmed on location in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. Go back to when I was Lieutenant Governor under Dewey Bartlett, and uh, a guy that was in the JCs with me had Oklahoma JC, Junior Chamber of Commerce, had gone to California and was working for a movie company. And one day in my lieutenant governor's office, he showed up, wanted to take me to lunch. And I said, what are you doing back here? You're supposed to be in Hollywood. He said, we're filming in Texas. Do they ever film a picture in Oklahoma? I said, not that I know of. And he said, well, you need to come out to Hollywood and let's check if we can get some movies filmed on location. So I went to Governor Barley. I said, can I put together a committee that will pay their own way, go to Hollywood? And he said, absolutely. And we went to Hollywood, came back. I created the film commission. Governor Barley created the film commission. And today we got movies filmed all over the state. Yeah. But what I'm saying, I want to point out that one of the things about serving in office is working together, not attacking right off the bat everybody else. And, and, and so for a year or so, Governor Barton and I didn't get along, and then we became best buddies. And when I became governor, we had the Votech building in Stillwater, and I named the building, the parking lot after, in his honor. I had several people say, why are you doing that? He was a Republican. I said, because he was the governor that brought Votech with me yeah. to Oklahoma. And so I want people to realize that when you think of politics, there's another expression that you need to keep in the back of your mind, and that's public service. Yes, you're in politics. Yes, you shake hands. Yes, you kiss babies. Mm -hmm. Yes, you make speeches. Yes, you buy ads. 
don't go overboard. Because your real message should be about public service, not just about politics. And so what I like about the History Center is that it's all about Oklahoma, not about politics or public, but it's more about public service. People are recognized for public service rather than for politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, going back to that, you know, that that childhood George yeah. and I, why, what, what, I get, what leads you to, to think that, you know, one day I want to become a governor or one day I want to be in politics when, when you were back, you know, growing up in McAllister? Let me tell you that I had no family members in politics, basically. My dad was a registered Republican. My mother was a registered Democrat. Uh, I was the fourth of four boys, and we grew up in McAllister, and uh, now I have to, <laughs> excuse me, I'm not trying to impress you with how young I am, <laughs> but Franklin Roosevelt, who was elected four times as president of the United States, had a weekly fireside chat on radio. Mm-hmm. And as a kid in grade school and junior high, I used to listen, can you believe it, to President Franklin Roosevelt and his fireside chats every week. I was just enthralled Mm -hmm. by his personality. He'd had polio, he was confined to a wheelchair. He was a sick man, and he got elected four times Mm -hmm. as President of the United States. And uh, I listened to his fireside chats. Now. Then when I went into the ninth grade, just before World War II started, 1941, I went in in in, uh, September into the ninth grade, which was in high school in McAllister, and the war started in December, of course. But uh, when I entered the ninth grade, I had a vocations class. And you were, it called vocations. Can you imagine in the ninth grade in 1941, in high school, we had a vocations class and you wrote down what you wanted to be when you grew up. And we studied that during the, that semester. Mm-hmm. And the teacher came to me, she said, now George, I don't know how we're gonna study what you wrote down. Doctor, lawyer, merchant, chief, you know, you didn't write any of those down. We've never had anybody write down governor. And I said, and, and, and I want to point out that I wanted to be governor, but I didn't know any issues that I was going to be running on. But I wanted to be in public service. I want to be governor. Now, the reason I'm telling you that, I want to lead up. I'm talking too much, but I want to lead up. I know you're reasonably new to Oklahoma, but I hope you've heard the name historically in this great state of Carl Albert. Mm -hmm. Carl Albert was a short man, the little giant from Little Dixie in southeast Oklahoma. When I came back after World War II, I joined the Navy at the end of, I was in boot camp when Japan surrendered. I stayed another year in the Navy, came back and went to junior college at Wilberton, Eastern Oklahoma. A&M Junior College, mm-hmm. Eastern Oklahoma College now. And uh, 
Carl Albert, in 1948, had been elected to Congress. He'd been in the military. He went in as a private, and he came out as a colonel. Yeah. A colonel. And can you imagine all these six-foot-eight men saluting this guy that's standing down here? You know, <laughs> yes, sir, General. But that's Carl Albert. Yeah. Now, the reason I want to mention him is that his life reminded, he became my inspiration. Mm -hmm. Yes, I wanted to be governor, but Carl was in Congress. Now, let me tell you about Carl Albert from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. He was born in Bug Tussle, just outside of McAllister. He went to a two-room schoolhouse for eight years. He had two teachers in school for eight years, one through four, five through eight. Carl Albert, when I was in the college at Wilberton, sponsored a Carl Albert oratorical contest, and I entered that. I'll come back to that. But we became friends. He lived back in the old days before we had Safeway and Walmart and all that in McAllister. We just had local grocery stores. My dad had a neighborhood grocery store. I grew up delivering groceries on a bicycle, then driving a car. I'd come home every weekend from college and deliver groceries. Carl Albert lived a block and a half from me. He traded at my daddy's store. And every time I delivered groceries to his house, they'd put on an extra 30 minutes because they knew I was going to stay. I'd sit down in his breakfast area when he was home from Congress and drink coffee for 30 minutes, and he was my inspiration. Now, Carl Albert from Buck Tussle, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. When he went into the ninth grade, he went to McAllister High. He became a national high school debate champion. He went to OU, became a national collegiate debate champion. He went to Scotland and yeah. Ireland and was an international debate champion. The little giant from Little Dixie came back, ran for Congress, got elected, and from Buck Tussle, Oklahoma, became the most powerful man in the United States Congress as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Yeah. Now, why I'm telling you all this story, he went to that two-room schoolhouse for eight years, and at breakfast, I mean at coffee one day, when I was delivering groceries to him, he said, George, now you need to start making your plans about running. You want to be governor. You need to work your way up. And I said, oh, yeah, Carl, I, I really need to. He said, when did you decide you want to be governor? And I told him that story about in the ninth grade I wrote down. Okay. I said, I don't even know why. But I just had listened to Roosevelt. I was enthralled by him. And he said, well, let me tell you. When I was in Buck Tussle in the eighth grade, the third district congressman came to Buck Tussle grade school and spoke to our eighth grade class, and he came to the grade school in a horse-drawn buggy wagon, and he was a congressman from the third congressional district, and he spoke to us, and as he was driving his horses off into the distance, I turned to somebody and said, that's what I want to be. In the eighth grade at Buck Tussle, Carl Albert said, that's what I want to be when I grow up, a congressman. Yeah. And he became Speaker of the U.S. House from Oklahoma. And so 
what inspires you to run for office is a lot of different things. So I just want to encourage people. Mm-hmm. We have a democracy. That's two words, demo democracy, meaning voice of the people. And you get to select who represents you. Mm-hmm. And people have to all, you know, you can't be drafted to be governor in Oklahoma. You can't be drafted to be on the city council. You can't be drafted to be a county commissioner. You have to offer yourself. Mm-hmm. So I want to encourage Oklahomans to be thinking about yeah. public service and government and offering yourself for public service. Yeah. Carl Albert's quote about you was that when he quit teaching history, he started making it. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you guys, I mean, that's you guys the nicest thing a, he ever said had, to yeah. me. Yeah. And you guys had a great relationship. Yeah. The, uh, well, you know, I, I was telling Jenny Campbell as we were coming for this interview, you need to read the small print. It's kind of interesting. I ran for the legislature in 1950. I was a senior, senior in college at East Central at Ada. And I wasn't planning on running. I still, I hadn't graduated yet from college, but the election was coming up in June and I was going to graduate in May, but I wasn't going to run. And the state representative from Pittsburgh County, McAllister, Lonnie W. Brown called me. I was home one weekend at my daddy's grocery store and he called me and asked me to come to his office and I went to see him and he said, you need to run for the legislature. I'm not running again. I said, Lonnie, I'm, a, I'm in college, 60 miles away, and I don't even have a car. I hitchhike home on weekends and back. And Lonnie said, you have a bigger chance of winning when there's not an incumbent. And I'm getting ready to announce that I'm not going to run again. So now's the time you need to offer yourself. So as a senior in college, mm-hmm. 60 miles away, I filed for the legislature campaign every weekend, went home, graduated in May, and in June won the Democratic primary. Yeah. Uh, thanks to his saying, I want to encourage you. I know you want to be involved. Now's the time for you to run. I wouldn't want to run. And so here's somebody that was almost a total stranger to me, although I knew him. I'd, right. He was older than I am, was, and I was in college, so I didn't run around with him. But he said, now's the time to run. And at that time, I became the youngest member of the Oklahoma legislature. Well, there have been members younger than I was when I got elected, but that session, I was the youngest member. But now when I said read the small print, in those days, in 1951, when I came to the legislature, the legislature only met every other year. So it met for five months from January to May, Mm -hmm. and then for a year and a half, it didn't meet. So you had to be doing something else for a year and a half. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do or anything, but so I came to the legislature and uh, the principal at Hartshorn High School, uh, I invited me to do a commencement speech at Hartshorn. And so I did. But the year I got elected, I made a commencement speech and then he came into my daddy's grocery store and said, you need to be a teacher. I said, I don't want to teach. My mother was a teacher. My sister, one of my brothers was a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher. 
He said, anybody that can keep the kids awake during a commencement needs to be a teacher. <laughs> so I went back to East Central and I said, what would it take for me to get a teaching certificate? And they looked at my classes that I'd taken mm -hmm. and said, you've taken everything that you need as far as subjects, but you haven't had any practice teaching. So they arranged that that first summer after I'd been elected to the legislature, I could go to school in Ada as a, as a member of the legislature, I went back and went to school, yeah. and I got eight hours of practice teaching on campus, and, and uh, the principal from Hartshorn that where I'd given the commencement had been hired to be the principal at McAllister, mm -hmm. and he hired me, and so I taught for seven years. I would teach one semester, and then take a leave of absence for a year and a half, three semesters, and teach Oklahoma history. Yeah. And so what's interesting is when I said read the small print, now back to read the small print, the law in Oklahoma is that you can't have two state jobs at the same time. Well, the courts had ruled that a teacher was not a state employee. Mm -hmm. So there were five members who were in education that were serving in the legislature the year I got elected. Then a different Supreme Court in Oklahoma a few years later said, yeah, teachers are state employees because we guarantee their salary, we sign contracts, so you can't do that anymore. Without changing the law, the court's opinion changed. So for seven years, I taught high school, Oklahoma history, while I was in the legislature. Yeah. Some great memories from that, I'm sure, teaching oh, yeah, history. I love, I love teaching uh, the ninth graders. It was funny. The law at that time also required that if you graduated to get a diploma from an Oklahoma high school, you had to have had a, a year of Oklahoma history. That's not the law anymore. Yeah. But in 1951, you had to have a year of Oklahoma history, and we taught it in the ninth grade, basically yeah. statewide. And it was fun to teach Oklahoma history. Mm -hmm. It's sad that it's not in; it's not required anymore, right? Like history no, is such a big part of our lives. I don't think they I think they over the law they've changed it each several times. Yeah. And now, and then they went to a period that six weeks in a semester they would teach Oklahoma history. Then they said, well, just during the year, teach some Oklahoma history. But to be truthful, I don't know what the law is right now, but they've changed it over the years. I kind of wish they required it because I want people to know Oklahoma history. I want them to know yeah. what Oklahoma means, land of the red man. I want them to know where we got the panhandle. I want them to know about the Red River. Uh, there's a lot of history in Oklahoma. And I want everybody that is a resident of Oklahoma to be as aware as much as possible of Oklahoma history. Yeah. Moving forward then, so you become, you, you become governor in 82. No, I become governor in 79. 79, the, sorry. The election was in 78. Okay. So you, you become governor in 79. Well, I mean, what's Oklahoma like in 1979 and what's Oklahoma politics like in 1979? Well, let me tell you. I'm glad you asked that question. 
when you become governor, you inherit what the state is doing before you, you were governor. I followed Governor David Bourne, mm -hmm. and Governor David Bourne did a great job for Oklahoma as governor. He really did. <clears throat> and so he did not run for reelection. Now, let me back up and say that the law changes. I get introduced sometimes as I'm the first governor ever to be reelected in Oklahoma. Well, we became a state in 1907, so I'm the first governor since 1907 ever to be reelected. Well, it was illegal. The Constitution didn't allow you to serve but one term, and they amended the Constitution when Governor Bartlett was governor. The people amended it and said you could serve two terms. Yeah. And uh, so uh, Governor Bartlett ran for reelection and lost to David Hall, who ran for re-election and lost to David Bourne, who did not run for re-election. I was lieutenant governor under David Bourne, so I ran to succeed David Bourne. So although I'm the first governor ever to be re-elected, there were only three before me that were legally allowed to try. <laughs> but so Bourne ran for the U.S. Senate, but as governor, the economy of the state was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And so when I became governor, nothing that I, I, I didn't know how much money we had. I really didn't know. I didn't know what it was going to be. And I was promising not to raise taxes, that I was going to just try to keep it going just like it was. Well, I inherited the economy that came from David Bourne, and we collected a lot more money than we had appropriated. And now here I go bragging, but I created the rainy day fund. I said, let's don't appropriate all this money. We may need it sometime. Let's set it aside. So we started setting aside money into what was called the rainy day fund. And how that became the rainy day fund, and when I was growing up, my parents had a, a kitty that they called the rainy day fund. Yeah. That they put their money in that they're going to need it sometime. They go in and get it out of the rainy day fund. So I created the Rainy Day Fund. Well, for four years, I just built it up, built it up, built it up. 1982, I'm running for re-election mm -hmm. and got re-elected, like I said. But I'm running for re-election, and I'm being driven in downtown Oklahoma City, and I, I never write a speech, but I generally write five words on my left hand that are things that I want to talk about and I just raise my hand and say, it's so good to be here. Then I look down and I look under my index finger and I'll see the word highways. And then I'll see the word education. Yeah. And that makes my whole speech, yeah. et cetera. So I'm writing down on my hand and I'm going to use as a theme running for reelection. Look what I've done. We've raised teachers' salaries. We've built more roads. I've raised state employees' salaries. I just look what I've done. And I'm going to a rally in downtown Oklahoma City. Look what I've done. And my cell phone in the car rings. Now, in those days, it was in the back seat on the floorboard, and it was, you know, about two feet big, and you had to hold it with both hands. But my cell phone rang, and it was my campaign treasurer said, I've got some shocking news for you. And I've just been writing down on my hand, look what I've done, look what I've done. 
He said, Penn Square Bank just failed. Mm -hmm. I said, what? He said, Penn Square Bank just failed. And what that did the next two years to the Oklahoma economy was terrible. And I was going to say, look what I've done. In that very day that I was going to say, look what I've done. Yeah. Penn Square Bank just failed. And so, lucky me, I had put aside money in the rainy day fund. So for two years, mm -hmm. I was able to raid or get money out of the rainy day fund and keep the state budget just like it had always been the previous four years that I inherited from David Board. Yeah. And then in the last two years of my second term, I was out of money and the economy was still going down. And I did something, and that's kind of interesting in politics, how many times you get called a liar. <laughs> I ran for re-election in 1982, and before Penn Square Bank failed, I said, I will not raise taxes. Right. Two years later, Penn and so I said, I will not raise taxes. And after I said that and made promises, I will not raise taxes, Penn Square Bank fails. And two years later, our economy is so bad that, now listen to this, highway patrol cars were pulling over to the side of the road because they couldn't afford to buy gas and drive up and down the highway. They just pulled over to the side of the road. I said, I can't do that. The National Guard couldn't pay their members. We had to cut appropriations. We were looking at cutting state employees' salary. We were looking at cutting teacher salary. Can you imagine having been governor six years and I want to say, let's cut teacher salary? Yeah. So I raised taxes. And they said, you're a liar. You're a liar. You're, you're a damn lying politician. You said you would not raise taxes. And I said, well, based on the facts, in 1982 when I was running, I was telling the truth. But facts change. Mm -hmm. And I, then I tried to ease it up. I said, I didn't really raise taxes. I just put back on some of them that I had lowered. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really raise them. Yeah. But... Uh, the last two years of my administration were terrible financially because the rainy day fund was empty. We, we couldn't, we couldn't commit, we couldn't build the highways that we had promised. We we couldn't do anything, mm -hmm. and I said I can't be, I can't preside. Now this is corny, but I didn't become emperor to preside over the fall of the Roman Empire. I did not become governor to preside over the failure of Oklahoma roads and schools and state employees and health services and mental retardation care. I didn't become governor to preside over that. I became governor to preside. Mm -hmm. And yes, we raised taxes and they accused me of being a liar. Uh, so things change when you're in office. Yeah. You were in office four times, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a long time. You've seen everything. I was Almost in office everything, four times, but you have to remember that there again, you got to read the small print. Yeah. My first, I, I'm officially a four-term governor, and you can only serve two terms in Oklahoma. Yeah. But I served four. 
but one was for nine days when Howard Edmondson resigned from the governor's office as we were going out of office when Bob Kerr died January 1st, 1963. Mm -hmm. The United States Senator from Oklahoma died January 1st, 1963. After Kerr's funeral, which President John F. Kennedy came to Oklahoma and attended, after Kerr's funeral, Edmondson resigned. There was nine days left on his term as governor and as lieutenant governor. I had run for governor and lost. I ran fourth in the Democratic primary. And lo and behold, I became the next governor yeah. for nine days. For nine days. <laughs> and then when I got elected governor in 1978, I was going to take office, but David Bourne resigned early because he'd been elected to the United States Senate. And uh, in both cases, let me back up. The small print in the U.S. Senate is that seniority is important when you appoint chairman and vice chairman of committees. And under the U.S. Senate rules, seniority is the time that you've served. So Howard Edmondson resigned early so he could be sworn in and become U.S. Senator nine days before all the other new United States senators took office. So he had seniority over all the new senators. Mm -hmm. Well, David Bourne resigned because he was going to be sworn in with the other new senators, but if he'd served out his term, all the new senators would have had seniority over him. Gotcha. And they would have never been chairman of committees or vice chairman, protected our armed forces and our military bases and built our rivers and lakes, you know. So they needed that seniority. So I became governor twice before I got elected governor and I'd only served 14 days, yeah. but I'd been governor twice. One, one of the things I want to talk about is the impact that you and your wife had as well, because your wife, Donna, was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2008. And I'll put her bio in the description for this podcast so everyone listening can go see that. But um, your wife as first lady made quite an impact as well. So I'm sure it was fun for you guys to be together and, and kind of you know, following her mission as well as not just the politics side of things, but, but the humanitarian side that your wife kind of focused on. Well, let me tell you the interesting thing about my family, Donna, my wife. And uh, sometimes when I am praying at night, I thank the good Lord for me being defeated for governor in 1962. I'd been in the legislature eight years. I'd been lieutenant governor for four years and uh, I wanted to run for governor and I ran forth and at night sometimes I said thank you Lord for me losing the governor's race because after I lost the governor's race I met Donna it's, and that's interesting we talked about me teaching school one of my former students I wasn't much older than my students so once they had graduated from college I was basically the same age they were. I ran around together with some of my former students. And one of them worked for American Airlines. And he said, I want you to meet this gal that worked for TWA. She's single. I want you, and I was single. I'd never been married. She, and, and my former student said, I want you to meet her. I've met her at air, air meetings. And that's when I met Donna. And if I had been elected governor, I would have never met her. Yeah. So I'm the happiest guy ever to be defeated for office because I met Donna. 
She had a son, Mike, who was 11, became my son, wonderful young man. And we had a daughter, George Ann, wonderful young lady. But my family, uh, like Donna, when I, she did not know that three years later, after we got married, that I was going to start trying to climb back up the ladder. So I said, I'm, I still want to be governor, so I'm going to go back and run for lieutenant governor again. And then I'm going to run for governor sometime down the line. And she said, I didn't know you were going to still run for being politics. And I said, well, Donna, that's what I want to be. Yeah. And, uh, and so she said, okay, but I have some request I'm going to put on you if you're going to run for office. Mm -hmm. When I ran for governor, my wife, Donna, my son, Mike, my daughter, Georgianne, we all four sat down and they all, the three of them told me what they wanted. And what my wife mentioned became remarkable. She wanted what we call then the mentally retarded. Now we call them the developmentally disabled. Mm -hmm. She wanted Oklahoma to do more for the dis de developmentally disabled, the mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. Now let me go back to the governors. When I became such a good friend with Dewey Bartlett, the Republican governor, and he called me to go check on the Votech, and he let me go check on the film committee, on the, having movies filmed in Oklahoma. He called me up one day and said, I want you to go to every state institution. If it, just every state, a prison, a college, mm -hmm. a hospital, if it's a state institution, I want you to spend the next year or so visiting every one of them, and I want you to come back, and each time you come back, tell me what you think that institution needs. I went to OU, OSU, I went to the veterans' hospitals, came back and told him. And so some of the time I said, Donna, I don't want to do all this by myself. I want you to go with me because there'll be places that I can't, you'll see things I won't see. And we visited the mental institutions at Enid, Sulphur, Pauls Valley, wherever they were. We visited the state mental institutions over by Tulsa. And Donna said, that's terrible. I said, they're okay, mm -hmm. but those people do not need to be, in, they're not in prison. And then I got to thinking, I had a cousin when I grew up, I had a cousin who had a developmentally disabled kid and they put her in a state institution. I never saw that kid again in my life. Yeah. You, and she said, they're just putting these mentally retarded people in institutions. They're taking care of them, but they're not training them to do anything. And she said, if you run for governor, George, You've got to promise me you'll do something for the mentally retarded. And I said, okay. Then when I got elected, I said, okay, Donna, yours. And she had gone to all those institutions with me. She said, those are terrible. And I said, okay, Donna, that's your job. You go to the legislature. Well, what she did, she became interested in uh, home care for mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. But many cities had city ordinances against care centers for mentally retarded. 
you couldn't put a health care center in it. And Donna would go to the city council all over the state mm -hmm. and say, you need to change your city law. And she came into me one day, she said, I'm getting a lot of them changed, but we just need to pass a state law. <laughs> yeah, that take care of all of them. And just say everybody has to, every town has to allow them. Yeah. If they meet the standards that the nursing homes, I mean, these mental homes need. So I said, okay, Donna, you go to the legislature, you become a lobbyist. She went to the legislature and she got it passed. Legislators, both Republicans and Democrats, loved Donna and her service. And she did a lot. Uh, like, for example, she, we have, we're talking about the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. She led in the creation of the Women's Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. She led in the creation of the Pioneer Woman Hall of Fame in Ponca City. She did a lot of things those eight years. She remodeled the mansion. She told people the mansion was built the same year my husband was born, and I've remodeled the mansion. <laughs> <laughs> she, but she got the law passed. Yeah. And we closed all the centers, and we opened homes mm -hmm. across the state. And those people can live in their homes. They could get married, and they can go out and work. Mm -hmm. And you, you go around, you'll see a group home, you'll see them going to work every day. Yeah. They're smart enough to be able to work, but they're limited in what they can do. Mm -hmm. But they're not confined to a mental institution. And that's one of the great things Donna, Donna did. And she was a big advocate for teachers' salaries and education, and she lobbied the legislature a little bit for teachers' education. But she was a—I always say, yes, she's my wife, but she's truly my partner. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the work that, like, you, everything you've just said, the work that she's done. And we were so honored when she was inducted yeah. into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's—you're a lucky man. She's a special woman. I'm a very lucky man. One of the uh, one of the, one of the the things in, in in Donna's bio is that she opened. She believed that the governor's mansion was for the people, right? And opened it up and had, I mean, over two hundred thousand guests into the mansion for everybody to see. The, the, I, I go back to saying that, you know, you talk about you're elected to office and you do stuff. A lot of the stuff that happened while you're that happens while you're governor, you had no idea that was something that you were gonna deal with when you became governor. But when we became governor, when, when I became governor, Don and I moved into the mansion. Now picture this, we moved into the mansion. There was a storm shelter in the backyard dug into the ground with a dome over it mm -hmm. that you could go in jump into the storm shelter in case of a tornado. And I asked the security one day, I said, what's, what's out there? And they said, oh, we don't know. There's a lock on the storm shelter, so if there is a storm, you got you got to have a lock. I said, well, how do I get in there if there's a storm? Where's the key? And they said, we have no idea. There was a storm shelter on the mansion grounds. Yeah with a lock on it, and nobody knew where the key was. And I said, well, cut the dang lock, <laughs> and let's look in it. Now, just think of all the governors that served as governor, yeah. and on the backyard was this dome 
We opened it and it was full of water. It had snakes swimming in the water. There were frogs in there. Yeah. There were varmints of all kinds. I said, fill that Hummer up. Get rid of that storm shelter. <laughs> okay, so they did. Well, then we said, this is the governor's. This is the people's mansion. Yeah. So we decided that we would do a little bit of remodeling and, and we did. Then we opened it up once a week for the public. And we, it's amazing, the first day we opened the mansion for the public, Donna and I stood in the first year, we stood in the receiving line and shook hands. But the first day, it went all the way down the, the line, went all down to the library, down the sidewalk, over into the parking lot by the Capitol. The line, there were thousands yeah. of people who came to look at the governor's mansion. Mm -hmm. So we redesigned some of the areas so that they could go, and we, we had a deal where they could go actually into our bedroom. We, we had volunteers who were tour guides. Mm -hmm. And they went into the bedrooms, they went into our children's bedrooms. They, well, not only was the storm shelter full of water, there was a basement in the mansion. And I went down to the basement and it had two feet of water in the basement of the mansion. And I said, dig, and I got criticized because I spent public money yeah. digging the walls deeper down the side of the mansion deeper into the ground and, and hard surfacing it all. And it's a TV room now. Yeah. And, but, but can you, why would you have a, in the governor's mansion, why would you have a, <laughs> a sunken? <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's just amazing. But anyway, uh, what, what was interesting is that the public loved being able to come and see mm -hmm. the mansion. And uh, that was Donna's idea, another yeah. one of her ideas. And it, now to tell you how you have to be careful, okay? Donna and I, we were also worried about physical problems that people had. Mm -hmm. Well, the man mansion had stairways in every entrance to the kitchen, to the back door, to the side door, to the front door. You had steps, no railing. Yeah. I said, put up railing. And over where the open house, then the main, people don't realize this, but the mansion was built so that the door facing the Capitol to the west is the main entrance. But people drive in in the driveway and come in yeah. a side door. But if you're coming in to tour the mansion, you come in down a long sidewalk from the area that faces the state capitol, and you climb up steps. And so I went to the capitol people that were in charge of it, and I said, build a ramp so that handicapped people can walk into the mansion. Well, I was attacked in the legislature for, for messing up the original state capitol. And I said, well, we need the handicapped person with a cane or with crutches or in a wheelchair has every right to come into the mansion as someone with two good feet. Yeah. 
So they built the ramp. I took the criticism. Well, I'll never forget the day that we opened it for the first time, the ramp, and we had that long line of people. There was a young lady and she was shaking Donna's hand and she said, I didn't know you had a ramp. She said, my mother is sitting in the car parked in the parking lot. I'm going to go get her in her wheelchair. Can I bring her into the mansion? And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And she went out and got her mother and wheeled her mother up the ramp into the mansion. And let me tell you, now, that's not why I ran for governor. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, she cried. The woman in the wheelchair cried when she came into the mansion yeah. because that ramp had been built and she could do what anybody else could do. She could go into the governor's public house. Yeah. And so when you're in office, you have a lot of things to do that you never dreamed was going to be. Right. And, and, and they become political. Like I said, some people attack me that I was destroying the image of the mansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. There's things that come up that you, like I said, you would have no idea that yeah, you would have an impact, have no idea, but yeah. you meet that lady and her mums. I mean, just you realize then that you have a far greater impact on making yeah, yeah. small decisions well, that at the time don't seem like big decisions, but they end up being really big decisions. Well, it's kind of like there's a third floor at the mansion where you have dinners and luncheons. It's a third. It's the, the entire third floor is one big room. Well, somebody put in an elevator. Well, they got criticized for putting in an elevator. But if you invited 200 people to a luncheon, mm -hmm. how many people would show up that couldn't climb two flights of curved stairway? And, and that's not fair to the people of Oklahoma. So you, you have a lot of things you have to take into consideration. Yeah. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, Follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Mike Hearn and Ian Weston. Mixed by Alan Brown, with music by Chad Duro.